along with our theme this morning of just looking at Noah's Ark. Are we safe in God? I mean, that's uh, very much a truth that is the case, safe in the arms of Jesus. And uh, we will look and see that this morning. Genesis chapter 7, 8, and 9. We're going to be looking at 8 and 9 here this morning, the story of Noah. But uh, Genesis chapter 8 and chapter 9, as we've read this morning. That looks like a normal airplane, a military aircraft known as a C-141, but uh, mainly did cargo and the like and was an aircraft that was a mainstay in hauling cargo around in the United States Air Force for a number of years. This uh, airplane itself is a museum piece now. I can remember as a young man going to air shows with my father, and uh, we would uh, go, and uh, oftentimes where we'd go, there'd be a, a runway, planes parked there, and you could go and look at them. This one you could actually walk through. This one had pictures down the walls of it. It was a military aircraft, but it had pictures on it, and it was a significant airplane for some individuals. Uh, this plane was uh, nicknamed, the specific one, was named the Hanoi Taxi. It was on this aircraft that multiple POWs from Vietnam were brought back at the end of the war. They flew on this aircraft. And you think about some of the details of what happened to these individuals that flew back on this Hanoi Taxi uh, it would shock you. We're familiar with the names of some of them. Probably the most famous one there, regardless of what your political party would be, is a man by the name of John McCain. He was a pilot that was shot down and uh, was uh, injured and in back and otherwise and, and suffered a number of years. Read the story of another one of these individuals that was released from uh, what was known as the Hanoi Hilton, <laughs> ironically by American soldiers that were captured. Uh, this is the title they gave to them, even though the prison name in Vietnamese was Fiery Furnace. They kind of made a joke of this, that they had such fine accommodations that they called it the Hanoi Hilton. But what you find with these individuals that were there, they were tortured repeatedly famous one was that they would be hung up and uh, by their wrists and in odd ways and allowed the pressure on their wrists to build up to the point where their hands would swell uh, to twice the size they should have been and and uh, they would loosen it up slightly and then continue that process or they would stick them in a cage that was just large enough for an individual to curl up in and they would be there for days in the hot sun uh, these type of things Medical care was not good. I read the story of an individual who uh, was shot in the head. And all they did to help him was this, is they, they put a clamp on the side of his head to make sure that the wound uh, kind of stayed closed. And this man lost, because he was shot in the left side, lost all of his right-handed uh, fun right hand functions uh, and couldn't walk. They were tortured, put in solitary confinement. And as you look at these men that were held in prison, for some of them, six, seven years. We can't imagine what they went through. We can be told. They can tell the stories. But it did come to a time where the Vietnam War ended, and these individuals, here they are, a, a day where they were kind of concerned because they were told that they were going to be released. Well, that could mean anything. They've been lied to repeatedly over and over and over again promised certain things that didn't happen by their captors that were there and so suddenly they get dressed up and are told that they're going to leave uh, they were really concerned at the fact of whether or not they would finally find deliverance that they'd be freed from prison i can remember as an, a teenager going through that airplane and seeing the picture of these individuals on the airplane when it finally lifted off the ground. You look at those individuals, they're excited about the fact that they had been freed. Never again to go back to that old life. Uh, they've been given a new chance at life. 
They, they know that no longer they're going to be held by these captives that have held them bound for this whole time. There's an excitement for them. A joy uh, that they have been saved. They've been rescued uh, from what they've been through. They were welcomed with uh, fanfare as they came back to the Philippines. These individuals, some of them able to walk off, others not able to. There's a famous picture of one who was the individual that I told you about, shot in the left temple, couldn't use his right arm, couldn't walk, and there was a question of whether or not he was going to come off in a wheelchair, and he said, no, I'm going to make it off the plane. And it's a famous picture of him kissing the ground uh, as these two people are holding on to him because he's just so excited to finally be on solid ground that was free. Now you say, what does that have to do with what we're looking at today? Well, can you imagine being in the state of Noah and his family, having gone through a flood that had lasted over a year, 371 days that they had been in a boat, they had gone through the 40 days of rain the waters beneath exploding to the surface and the rain coming down. And they spent 150 days after that where they had no solid ground uh, underneath their boat. Eventually the boat found a place to rest, but they stayed in that boat all this time uh, wondering if they're ever going to get out. And finally the day came. As I joked last week, I think I probably would have gotten out and gotten down and kneeled on that ground and perhaps just kissed the ground to make sure it was solidly there. But as you read the story, we are told what happens when Noah gets off the ark. And what God does in response is they have been rescued in the midst of judgment that killed all life uh, on land, uh, man and beast, the fowls of the air, uh, and those that creeped on the earth. All of them died, but those coming off the ark survived. You have this story that we read this morning of the interaction of God and these individuals. And there are some things here that God makes very clear to his people and promises them certain things. These promises and these commands are things that are the start of things that we are so familiar with in our culture today that we take them for granted. But in this time, God makes these things clear. Issues of life and death, government, birth, life, all of these things uh, that are important to God are dealt with in this passage. And so this morning, I would like us to go through this and just find out why this passage is here. And the main message of it is just simply this. After you get done with this, is that mankind has a responsibility to protect life. Okay? Mankind has a responsibility to protect life as a reflection of God's care for life. God's concern for life. That mankind has this responsibility to protect life as a reflection of God's care for life. And when they came off the boat, as you find in the first uh, chapter there we looked at of chapter 8, verses 15 to 22, you find first of all this, that mankind has a responsibility to bring life across the whole of the earth or of over all of creation or across all of creation. See, what you have here is the story that as you read it, that uh, you find out that the dry ground comes out uh, of the waters and suddenly animals appear coming out of the boat and, and Adam comes off the boat and, or excuse me, Noah comes off the boat and you say, what's going on here? It's like you have a second creation story going on. All the details that you find in the account in Genesis 1 and 2, suddenly this idea of being fruitful and multiplying and all these different types of animals being named and the water now drying up and dry land appearing out of the water and the like and the, all of these things. Noah is a, as some would call, a second Adam, though he is not the second Adam from above. He's an individual who's given an opportunity to succeed where mankind had failed before. 
Adam had been given a charge and it hadn't happened uh, properly. And so all of a sudden you have God clearing the tables as uh, that judgment was described when God said he'd blot out man from the earth. It's like cleaning a plate off and God saying, okay, here's this new opportunity for mankind. And in this, as soon as Noah gets off the boat, you find that he moves uh, as he is there in verse number 20, that Noah builded, uh, builded an altar unto the Lord. In our scripture, this is the first time that you have mention of an altar. You say, well, what did Cain and Abel offer on? I don't know. It doesn't talk about it. But this is the first occasion where you have something being offered on an altar. And you say, why would uh, Noah do this? Well, this is a response that obviously had been part of the culture and life before that Noah had led, where if you wanted to show praise and, and worship to God, this was part of it. This is why they understood that you had to take more clean animals than the unclean animals. And we say what clean animals are. These are the ones that are able to be sacrificed. They took more of them on the ark. You go, why? Because they knew that they would need these animals in order to worship God by sacrificing them. And as soon as they get off the ark, here Noah offers this altar to the Lord. It's directed to him in this burnt offering that takes place where the sacrifice there would have been offered and completely consumed which was to become the daily staple of the Israelites. They would have a burnt offering in the morning and the evening, and they would have them throughout the day. But this offering that would be completely consumed, and you would have this aroma that would go up, and the aroma going up would be something that, in the context as you read through Scripture, would be something that God would smell and savor. And when God saw this, as Noah comes out, it's Noah's form of worship, thanks to God. Thanks to God for the survival that he had. Thanks to God for the life that had been given to him and his family and all these creatures that were with him. It was an offering of thanksgiving to him. What Noah was doing was that he was actually doing what was prophesied about him. You go, what do you mean was prophesied about him? I want you to go back and look at the account of Noah's birth. Go back to chapter 5 and verse number 28. Noah's dad was a man by the name of Lamech. Lamech, uh, it says, lived 182 years and begat a son. Verse 29, he called his name Noah or the idea of rest or comfort. Saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. This one, this Noah, is going to be one who's going to bring rest and comfort. And you go, well, how did that happen? Well, you go back to this account in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20, and it talks about this sacrifice that he offers. And verse 21, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the earth. And you go, well, what happened here? Well, that word that is sweet savor is a play on the name of Noah. It's one that brings rest or comfort. The sacrifice, God goes, I'm giving rest. I'm giving comfort. It satisfies me. It pleases me. Noah, you're one who's worshipped God, and I brought you through this, and you're offering the sacrifice, and I'm pleased with you. And I'm, in one way, I am one who can now rest from the judgment that I've had because you're one who is worshipping me. I think through this, this is also a sacrifice, not just merely of thanksgiving. It's a sacrifice uh, that would be offered. A burnt sacrifice was really a sacrifice that was offered for individuals that had sinned. And oftentimes you find individuals in the Old Testament offering sacrifice for sins, even though they might not have been the ones that have done it. We would call it an atonement sacrifice or making atonement. Something had to die uh, to show, yes, we understand that this sin is death worthy that we did uh, and the sacrifice would be offered. And so here coming out of the ark, Noah offers, first of all, a worship sacrifice where he is pleasing to God by the sacrifice, but it also satisfies God in the sense that there's a recognition of humanity that, yes, we are sinful. The sacrifice has been made 
And so you go through and you start off with this idea of worship and sacrifice. And what God promises is this, that he says this in verse 21, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. And the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore everything living as I have done. What God promises is this, is not that he's going to pull back the curse that he gave mankind. You see this word curse in this passage, it's not the same one where you have mankind being cursed for sin in the garden and the ground being cursed. It's just simply uh, a term that's used for cursing that just simply means to take something lightly or despise it. It would be a term oftentimes used when, when children despise their parents. God says, I'm not going to treat the world lightly again like this. Okay, uh, And it's not a light thing that he did there, but he says, I'm not going to treat it lightly. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to possibly ever do it in this fashion again. Verse 22, he then makes his promise, which is going to be expanded, and we'll look at it a little bit more. He says, while earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. God says all these patterns of life, the seasonal patterns of life, the daily patterns of life, I'm not going to allow them to stop. I'm going to continue this process. I'm going to care that these things happen. And so as you think about this, God is one who behind the scenes is causing all things, as the New Testament describes it, to consist or continue on. I read a passage like this and I'm reminded about the fact that there's no such thing as Mother Nature or Mother Earth. That's a pagan concept. We as Christians every once in a while fall into using that concept, but it's an errant concept. God promises, listen, we're going to have weather patterns the way they are. We're going to have seasonal patterns the way they are. We're going to have day and night. And it's because I'm going to make sure that it happens. God is the one that's behind these things. And for us to look at this and just calmly say, well, you know, it's just uh, Mother Nature's angry today. We'll see what, no, God's the one that's behind all of this. And he promises mankind this right off the ark. He says, I'm going to take care of these seasons for you. I'm going to make sure that they continue the way that they're supposed to. I've got an interest in these things. I will take care of you. Really what he's saying is this. I will take care of those things that bring you life. I'll watch after them. And so when Noah gets off the ark, he worships and sacrifices to God, and God promises, I will take care of you. But you also see in this section of Noah getting off the ark that God commands mankind to multiply across the face of the earth. This is a repeat of what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. They were supposed to multiply and replenish the face of the earth. They were to have children upon children that were supposed to go across the whole of the earth to bring God's image across the earth. Individuals reflecting that uh, across the earth. And when you get off of this boat, you find that God says, uh, verse 16, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives of thee. Uh, bring forth these living things that are with you. And then at the end of that verse in 17, it says, Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. What God expected mankind to do was to have children upon children upon children. This was the expected uh, responsibility of mankind to fill the earth with life. Bring these animals along and bring them with life, but also to have children to continue life. You say... Is it important that people have children and families have children uh, as Lord allows them? And the answer is absolutely. This is God's plan from the beginning with Adam and Eve. He restates uh, this with Noah. He's going to restate it with the children of Israel that you multiply and replenish the face of the earth, that you have children. And this is how life continues on. It's part of God's plan. I think today, and think about our culture that takes life and the having of children so cheaply. It's something to put off for a long time because children are a hindrance. 
are bothersome. As you look at uh, cultures, especially across Europe, they're finding that the population is dwindling there because they've decided that they don't want to have children. Now, they're running contrary to what's going on. As you read uh, in Europe, the population is exploding, especially in uh, Muslim cultures, and they're having five or six children. They're actually outpopulating the people in Europe. And you go, well, what's going on there? They've chosen not to have children. They don't consider them a blessing from the Lord. They don't consider it their responsibility as part of this world to continue life. In fact, we've gotten to the point where life is so cheap that we're willing to execute and kill children that have never a chance of life. I mean, God here says, my, my goal for humanity, I mean, he's not just talking to save people, ones that are following him. My goal for humanity is this, is to have life and to give life and to have children. This is what you ought to be doing. Okay, and don't worry, if you have a command like this, don't worry about us ever overpopulating the earth. God's delight is that life begets life and that you have families producing children. He delights in giving people physical life and them enjoying this as part of God's plan for humanity. And for us as human beings to shortchange this and, and say it's not important for us to continue to have children or the like or uh, to just ignore the fact that We've been commanded to be fruitful and multiply and increase across the face of the earth. God said this from the beginning, and for us to so cheaply look upon it is to ignore what God said. Just coming right at the beginning here. Multiply across the face of the earth. Have life. So mankind, as you start off here, has a responsibility to bring life across all of creation. The responsibility that uh, you have been given by God for this. But second of all, as you look at chapter 9 and verses 1 through 7, you see this, that mankind has an authority to protect human life. An authority given to them by God. See, what happens in chapter 8, you kind of have a statement that God is going to take care of these individuals, and He's going to give seasons, and you have this statement. But what you have in, in chapter 9 is a stating of God saying, okay, you're going to deal with things in a new way. They weren't dealt with this way before the flood, but I'm going to have a new way of dealing with things in human culture. And I'm going to do this in a way by giving you responsibility that you did not necessarily have stated for you before the flood. I am now stating as humanity, as mankind, this is now your responsibility. You say, well, what's the responsibility? Well, first of all, regularly as you look at this, that animal life is to be controlled. Look at uh, chapter 9. Verse 1, it says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. There's that command. Okay. Create life across the earth. Then verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb that I have given you, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. You think about this, is that why would this command be made? Why would God allow animals to be killed? Now, we're not told if they were uh, executed or uh, killed for meat before the flood. We know that animals were sacrificed. There was animal skins made for Adam and Eve, but uh, it may not have been that they had the responsibility to be able to eat animals before the flood. But whatever the case is, is that to ensure animal life will not be a threat to human life, the Lord gives uh, the annual, animal population a fear and dread of human beings, enabling mankind to exercise a limited authority over them. When you think about animals, they do have a genuine respect and fear of 
humans. Now, you may look at your cat and go, no, that's not the case. But in general, when it comes to thinking about animals, there is a general fear and dread of humanity. But what you also find with them when especially overpopulation of animals happens is that you have mankind being threatened by animals. When the population is not taken care of. See, what, what is being stated here is that it's okay to take the life of animals. Understand this. They aren't eternal souls. You're not going to see your pets in heaven. Okay, they're not eternal souls. But what you do have is this, is that these uh, creatures are given to us for us to rule over, take responsibility for, and part of that may be uh, the eating of these animals or protecting individuals human beings from destruction by animals you find uh as you look at uh, the statement here that there may have been as some have suggested that when you think about sin and humanity it not only affects human beings it affects all of creation Read the passage in Romans chapter 8. It talks about that creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Okay, One day, all of creation will be freed from us having a sin nature. Creation looks for that day. It groans for that day. And sometimes what you find as a result of this that animals respond with sinful-like actions, uh, destructive habits, because they live in a world that we cause to be cursed. And so they act in ways that we would never expect them to in the Garden of Eden where they all appeared before Adam. Sometimes they respond with violence. And so sometimes they, as the Scripture says, need to be killed. And in the process of killing them, sometimes you can eat the meat of them. But the thing that is made very clear here in the eating of meat... Okay, so understand this, that the Bible allows for individuals to eat meat, that we aren't to be just vegetarians and, and vegans, which those are choices of life that individuals uh, can make. But the fact is, is that God allowed individuals to eat meat. But in the process of eating meat, there's this statement that says that in verse 4, that flesh with the life thereof, uh, which is the blood, ye shall not eat and what it's making very clear is this, is that when you eat meat, you don't eat the blood. That you drain the blood. And as you find with the sacrifices of the Jews, they were very thorough about making sure that the blood was drained out of these animals. You go, why? Because blood, in looking at that statement in verse 4, it's like an equal statement. Life equals blood something doesn't have blood, they don't live. It's what provides life to an individual as far as their physical body. And so what God says, at least in respect and understanding of the life of that creature, you do not eat the blood. Now, this did have some implications for the nation of Israel. Remember who's reading this book first of all. A nation that's about to cross over the Jordan River to go into a land that's filled with Canaanites and Girgashites and Jebusites and all these other ites that are there. You know what their religious practices were? And some occasions uh, were to eat animals raw. And do this, and you go, well, there's danger in doing that. Absolutely, there's all sorts of diseases that happen with this type of thing. And God is just in this nation reminding them, wait a second, you're going into a land filled with people that is a part of their worship. They sometimes eat animals that have not had the blood drained from them. They're eating them raw. Don't do that for your own safety, for your own life, but an understanding that that is a life you're taking. There is some responsibility for you as a human being for this animal life that you take care of them. And there is some respect to understanding that life has been taken. So don't eat the blood. 
And so you start off, uh, this animal life is to be controlled, uh, that mankind has a right to control animal life, and it may be that they end up having to kill certain animal populations in order to protect or to feed. Just part of life. But it doesn't mean be irresponsible in this. Because life is still something that God views as good. But secondly, you see that mankind, animals to be controlled by, uh, animal life is to be controlled, but second of all, that mankind is to be controlled by government. See, what happens in verse 5 is that, okay, we've talked about the killing of animals and how you take uh, care of their blood and that you can eat them, but you do a certain thing understanding that life is in the blood. And then the conversation shifts to, now what do we talk about when it comes to humanity? Look at verse number 5. And surely your blood, uh, your blood of your lives will I require... At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, and the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. God says it's okay for you to be able to take animal life. I'm giving you that kind of provision, but I am not going to allow you to murder off individuals. And I'm going to give mankind something to give them restrictions on this. You read this, and, and hopefully you saw it as you go through verse 5. Three times God says, when you shed the, the, the blood of a human being, whether it be an, a human being doing this or an animal doing this, I will require it. I'll bring you into judgment for this. These are things that I judge for. I take this seriously is what God is saying. This is not a light thing that you take human life. And you go, why is it not a light thing to take human life? Well, we find this as you read there in verse number 6. Because here you have an individual, when you talk about humanity, that's made to reflect the image of God. The only thing in the universe that can be said, God created mankind out of the dust of the earth and breathed in them the breath of life. God has a special care for humanity because we are designed to reflect what he's like on this globe, in this universe, uh, to be a reflection of that. And for an individual to kill someone who is in the image of God is as if to raise up their hands against God. They may not be able to get to God, but they can take out his image and destroy his image here on the earth by the killing of humanity. And God says, I will require it. There will be an accounting for this. God takes this seriously. And you say, well, how is God going to restrict this? Well, as you think about what happened before the flood, here's what happened before the flood. Everyone took out their own vengeance. Remember the story of uh, Cain's descendant, Cain being the first murderer, and God, uh, in his grace, not requiring it of Cain, but helping him to wander throughout life and protecting him and his grace and mercy. But you get to the end of the story of Cain's line, and there's this individual by the name of Lamech, and he boasts about the fact that someone hurt him. So he killed him. It seems that in the culture before the flood, that mankind, if they had a, a fault with somebody else, went after them and took their own vengeance. They went after others and exacted retribution as they saw fit themselves personally. And what God says here, that after the flood, he understands that mankind, because they're sinful, there's probably going to be murderers and the like. He understands the heart of individuals and their reactions to things. But what he puts in is a check. Something to regulate, to slow down, to try and keep individuals from murdering others. And it's this idea of government. When you read that passage where it says... Um, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Uh, the idea there is not that this person is vengeancing himself, but it's the responsibility of the community at large to punish that individual. 
You go, why did God institute this? Well, oftentimes what would happen when an individual uh, would go out and take justice into their own hands, they would go far beyond what they should. But what you find, especially when God starts giving regulations in Exodus and, and Leviticus to the nation of Israel, what he is giving a chance for is for there to be situations where things happen accidentally. He's going to put in cities of refuge for people to flee, for, flee to when they accidentally killed somebody. They're out working in a field and they're swinging an axe and the axe, swings off, the, the axe head swings off there and kills somebody. It's an accident. They've got an opportunity to go to the city of refuge and be there and safe until the, the city and the, the leaders there can make a judgment on whether or not it was intentional or involuntary. God understood there would be situations where there would be accidental deaths. And for society, what that would do if you had a group of individuals helping to decide and discern what went on here, that you would not have uh, things going back and forth where individuals would be just taking the uh, life of other individuals without giving a chance for judgment, clear thought. But yet... If society is functioning the way that it is and supposed to be doing, they will, as a government, exact judgment that is equal to the, we might say this, to the crime. What has been taken. The appointed instrument is society's enforcement agency, a restraint upon threatening behavior. You're not given exact details how this is going to work out, but in the case of the crime of taking somebody else's life, which life is important to God, the statement here is that capital punishment, say, what's that? Life for a life. Capital punishment is not interpreted as a threat to the value of human life, but rather is society's expression of God's wrath upon anyone who would profane the sanctity of life. Having a government and a society that carries out capital punishment is declaring this, we believe life is valuable, not cheaply to be taken, and it is not something that you get to take lightly. It's a statement of society on the value of life uh, to have a government that carries out judgment for those that harm and hurt and even kill others. We learn that humankind does not have unlimited power over life just because God does. God warns in this section that, uh, that people uh, taught people to safeguard life both in how they ate meat and how they preserved human life on earth. That this statement in this passage is exacting retribution is not a personal matter but an obligation of the society at large. That we judge those that harm others. This is not an Old Testament concept. Okay, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the idea of giving equal judgment for the crime. Not an Old Testament idea. In fact, it's a New Testament idea in the letters of the Apostle Paul explaining to the church how they ought to live and how they ought to respond to government. In fact, probably one of the most powerful passages is found in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 talks about a Christian's response to government, and it says this, let every soul, everyone be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. Okay, God gives responsibility and positions of authority to people here on earth. Well, he gives a responsibility to government. These powers are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance or the command of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. I mean, what it states there is in society you have governments that have been ordained by God, whether they be monarchies or in our, our culture, we have the opportunity to be a democracy. We elect our officials and we have a republic because our leaders then make decisions for us. 
But no matter what power God sets up over the society, the responsibility of that government is to reward those who are are being kind and gentle to others and doing what's right. And for those that are hurting and harming one another, that they do not bear the sword in vain. They have a responsibility to take judgment upon those that are hurting human life. God does not take that cheaply, but they are not to take the sword in vain. If you want to go against uh, and hurt humanity, then be afraid, as the passage says. The Apostle Paul says there is every right of the government to bring judgment upon you. Or even 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, it says this, Submit yourselves to every ordinance, every rule of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Say, what's government's responsibility? Praise those that do what's right and judge those that are hurting and harming others. That's their responsibility. I really shook my head this morning as I read through this again. I said, it's really ironic when we have an election season coming up and you have a passage like this. Government bears a responsibility to punish evildoers, especially murderers, but also those that harm individual. When a government fails to punish those that hurt others, they are failing a God-given mandate to them. They're failing in what they're supposed to be doing, no matter what their political party is. When they determine to set people free who harm others, they fail in their responsibilities. It's that simple. Government has a responsibility to make sure those that harm and hurt other human beings are punished, not released, not set free but that they, it's not, and understand this, the judgment and the punishment doesn't always solve that person. It doesn't correct it, but it doesn't matter. They're still supposed to judge the crime. And if government fails to do that, it's a government failing its mandate from God to punish harm to human life. So vote according to that. But you see this and you have this statement that God is concerned about human life and that he sets up restrictions. He says, okay, you can have bodies of government that can bring judgment upon people who take the life of others. God is concerned about human life and so mankind's been given responsibility over all life as far as human life and uh, for animal life. But you see in verses 8 through 17 that mankind has an opportunity to live on earth due to God's care for them. And this passage is not about, okay, make sure that all those that kill others get their judgment. No, it's, it's, it's praising life. God wants life to go on because you get done with that passage that talks about here's what happens to a person who sheds man's blood. But verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. I mean, God is emphasizing life. He gives life as a gift. And so you get to this, mankind has the opportunity to live on earth due to God's care for them. What you find in verses 8 through 17 is God covenanting with mankind to give them life to protect their physical life so that they can live in a way that pleases God. They've got this opportunity. They can live life, we might say. And you have a covenant that takes place here. Okay, A covenant is an old-fashioned term for an agreement or a promise that God makes. See there in verse number 8, God spake to Noah and to his son, saying, And behold, I establish my covenant with you and and with your seed after you. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you. Or verse 17, And God said to Noah, This is the token of my covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is in the earth. God says, I'm making this kind of promise. I'm guaranteeing this. Now, sometimes in the Bible when you had a covenant, it was between two groups and they both promised to do something. 
Okay, this is what you have when Moses and the children of Israel get to the Mount Sinai and God gives them a set of laws and he says, okay, will you have me to be my God? And he sa- they say, well, we'll have you to be our God. And he says, you'll be my people. Well, here you've got this promise that the people will obey God and God will be a God to them. But if anybody breaks that promise, then there's a curse brought on. Well, guess what? Time and time again, the nation of Israel uh, doesn't hold to this. And they continuously break what is known as the Mosaic Covenant with God. Over and over again. This is a covenant that only has one person who's guaranteeing it. There doesn't have any, it does not have any requirements to it. It's just a straight out promise that this is going to happen. And God says, I'll make sure that this happens. I will establish this covenant. This promise will never change. It will be a guarantee. You know, more than a lifetime warranty. It's lifetimes and lifetimes now that this has been a promise of God. The promise is just simply this. Look at verse number 11. I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Please just simply say, I promise this will never happen again. There will not be a universal flood. It won't happen this way. You are protected from ever being destroyed by a flood again. Now, understand this. There are floods around the earth, not on a universal scale. You can at least find dry ground somewhere. Never again is this going to happen where God has to take human life like this and do it in this way that he does this. And you say, well, how does he make sure that this is a promise that's guaranteed? He gives a sign. Oftentimes when you had covenants, you would have a sacrifice that was offered. You'd have blood that was shed and that would guarantee the thing here. That was a sign of the covenant, the agreement. But in this case, God says, I'll give you a sign and it's going to be this bow in the heavens. Verse number, excuse me, verse number um, 12. This is the token or the sign of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature uh, for your perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant. You say, what's this bow that's there? Well, it's, uh, we translate it as rainbow, but literally as these people would have understood it, it would be a bow. You say, what do you mean as a bow? A bow and arrow, as we might describe it. Uh, a bow would have had that same curve as a, a, the, the bow that would have been in the sky. And some have taken it this way, and it was, seems to be that the cultures back then would have understood this, that it's as if this, this is the promise that God is no longer going to be at war with his people war with the earth in the sense of judging them no he hangs his bow up in the sky pointed away from humanity and covering all of the horizon to say that this is universal that this is a sign that it covers all of the earth and that god is no longer judging his people the bow has been hung up no longer to war And you say, okay, so has this happened from generation to generation? Did God keep his promise? And the answer is absolutely. When God said there that he would remember in verse number 15, that term throughout the scriptures describes when God reacts to a covenant or promise that he makes. It's as if he remembers. He remembers because, or remembers just simply means this. He's going to act in response to what he's promised. And God said this, I will never destroy the earth again by a flood. This is a perpetual reminder as the rainbow, as you see it after a rainstorm and the sun on the opposite side and you see that rainbow go into the sky, you can be reminded that's a promise of God's care. For 5,000 years, he's kept that promise. It's been a guarantee that he would not destroy the earth by a flood. My basement may be flooding, but it didn't flood the whole earth, so that's good. He promised that it wouldn't be a universal flood to destroy. And so you then think about this, that God's made a lot of other promises in the Scripture, and that God acts in according to those promises. 
I was thinking this morning that promise that is so important for us for salvation and deliverance. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You're going, I wonder if God holds to His promises. Well, look at what God has done in relation to this promise He made to Noah. He's kept it. 5,000 years. He's done this. So you wonder, can He save me like He promised and give me a home in eternity? Uh, And the answer is yes. God remembers. He acts in relation to His promises. You are safe. You're secure because it's not you that's guaranteeing that promise. It's God who is always faithful, who does not lie, is holding that promise. And so for us, as Noah's coming off this ark, we understand he's realizing we're safe from this kind of judgment again. But for individuals looking later and seeing promises like this that they've had God make to them, they ought to realize that they're safe. That God guarantees the promises that He makes. Those that have put their faith, and for us in New Testament times, that have put our faith in Him, that He has covenanted with us through the new covenant, the shed blood of His Son, which is the sign of that covenant, uh, that His blood was shed, that He promised to save us if we just simply put our faith in Him. God will hold to that promise. He won't break it. He'll bring us deliverance. And that ought to, as we get done with this, just simply make us rejoice. Just like Noah getting off the ark. We saw those guys coming off the, or getting off the ground out of Vietnam and rejoicing. Noah coming off the ark and rejoicing at the protection that God's given him. We ought to have the same kind of response. There ought to be a joy in our soul and our heart that we have a God who keeps his promises and he's promised to save for eternity. I'm safe. Therefore, I ought to thank Him and praise Him and give my life as a response of worship back to what God has given to me in my life. So as we go through this week, we ought to be individuals that reflect upon the life that God's given to us. Physical life. We still have it. Thank the Lord. He's given us spiritual life, which is all the more important. He's given us that We ought to realize that this is a God who deems life as an important thing. It ought to be something that we use because it's a gift from God, both physical life and spiritual life. We ought to use it in a way to reflect who He is and that we ought to, in our society, promote the fact that God has given us life to praise and glorify Him, to reflect what He's like in this world and to live a life that's pleasing to God, but more importantly, to gain the spiritual life that God has given through His Son. God views life as important. We ought to reflect upon it and rejoice in it and reflect on the fact that God has given us so much life life that we are to enjoy it and reflect our praise back to him may we do that with a life that we have left physically here and the eternal life that we have one day in his presence reflect praise for the life that he has abundantly given to each one of us lord we thank you you're a great god you've allowed us to live more years than we probably deserve each one of us. You've given us life. It's a gift uh, for us. You've allowed us to have children and, and uh, grandchildren in some cases that you've given them life. Lord, may we not take that life so cheaply that we just live it for ourselves to the hurt of others, but that we live our life as a reflection of what you're like in giving life, especially through your son. Your son who died for us to give us eternal life. May we reflect that great grace and great gift we've been given as we live our life. May we be worshipful individuals thanking you for the health that we have and the spiritual life that we have and call others to live their life in a way that lives life to the fullest and that's not for themselves, but in a life that reflects who you are and for you. So may we praise you no matter what happens in our life this week. And reflect upon the salvation and the safety you've given us time and time again and for eternity. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.